Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where we are saying goodbye to resolutions and only focusing on action. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I help B2B SaaS founders like you scale up and exit, creating incredible valuation, social impact, and all along the way, enjoying the freedom that many of us became entrepreneurs for in the first place. Well, 17 days after ringing in the new year with resolutions to enhance your life, you know, if there's a day to make resolutions for the year ahead, then I think there should also be a day to break them. And that's today. January 17th is Ditch New Year's Resolutions Day. You know, we, a lot of us started the year with great intentions. And as of today, you officially have permission to let go of those seemingly unachievable undertakings and focus on the few things that really matter and will move the needle for you in 2023. Lots of people still make New Year's resolutions. Are you one of those? And, and if so, how are you doing? Like, really, how are you doing? Oftentimes, I think they seem like a really good idea at the time, really lofty goals. And you know, are those commitments now, is it life-giving or is it life-sucking? Uh, sometimes it's a combination of both. But so often, I think they become more of a source of tension rather than a source of motivation. And so it's, it's simple. Just quit attempting to reach unattainable goals by willpower alone. Instead, my recommendation is to hold a resolution burning ceremony. If you made your New Year's resolutions on paper, drop that list right in the fireplace and watch it go up. If it's on your phone, just take that thing and throw it into a pond, a lake, the ocean. All right, maybe not. Maybe just delete the list. I think to accomplish something really meaningful and achieve the improbable, if not the impossible, we really need three things. And willpower actually isn't even on the list, but the desire to change is what makes us get the three things. And so we can call that willpower if you like. But those three things are number one is a plan. Number two is a roadmap. And number three is a way to get help. Think of it like a stool with three legs. It takes all three of those, although otherwise it falls over. Now, a plan is deciding exactly what you want specifically and making that outcome non-negotiable. You know, I have to achieve that outcome. And let's say if, you know, if it's getting healthier or weight loss, I and mean, that's a really big kind of a cliche goal for the, the year, but that's it's a good goal too. You know, it's following a specific plan, like you know, we're gonna work out five times a week at 6 a.m. so that I get fit, lean, cut, and get to you know, so many pounds, my ideal weight, or kilos, or maybe if you're in the UK, maybe it's I wanna be so many stones. I love that. Yeah, who measures in stones? Uh, first time I heard that, I thought it was, it was fantastic. But see, a plan alone, even with willpower, rarely works. We need the other two legs or the stool falls over. So a roadmap is number two. And a roadmap is a path to follow with milestones so that you know if you're on or off track. One of the best ways is to work with someone who's been there as a guide and show you the shortest path to result. You want to work with somebody who has achieved the outcome that you're looking to achieve. So not somebody who's read about it or, or you know read a book or is 
you know, really smart, but somebody who's been there and experienced what you're trying to do. They, they've achieved what you want to achieve and can show you the shortest path and the shortcut. It's that straight line navigation instead of just trial and error, which we seem to do a lot of as founders at times. And third is a way to get help. You know, none of us succeeds alone. You know, lots of us try, and that's kind of the entrepreneurial way, but that is the hard way. Uh, that's a, a tough, tough way and a lot of expensive lessons along the way. Uh, as Keith Cunningham says, it's paying the dumb tax. And I'll tell you, I have paid so much of that uh, in my life and career. But the best way is to navigate success together with mentors and peers who encourage us and hold us accountable to be the person that we want to become. Well, today's sponsor, Champion Leadership Group, helps SaaS founders grow and scale premium value companies while creating impact and living a life of freedom. So you can get your plan roadmap along with the camaraderie and accountability while you travel with founders who are on that same SaaS building journey as we are. So you can learn more about that at championleadership.com and turn those burned up resolutions into more revenue revolutions as your sales growth accelerates. So check out championleadership.com today. Well, in last week's episode, we talked with Alyssa Marshall, co-founder and CEO of Alish, who gave us some fascinating insight into her journey from dentistry to training to being a SaaS founder. Yeah, a great takeaway from Alyssa's episode for SaaS founders is creating a course to educate your prospects. And this isn't just about your solutions. Uh, a lot of us kind of gravitate to that. Like, I'll make a video about my solutions. But make a course about industry topics, trends, hot issues, things that they care about. Educate them. Because that increases authority and increases the know, like, and trust factor for your company as well. So thank you, Alyssa, for that nugget of wisdom. And our SaaS founder last week was Edwin Fieldbet, founder and CEO of Favorite a SaaS POS system for restaurants, bars, and events. And Edwin is creating amazing guest experiences using technology to do the simple low-value task and up-leveling the service interactions. And there's some great lessons in there for us as SaaS founders about really up-leveling our, our service and the things that we can do uh, for our clients and the way that we serve them. My guest today is Ted Elliott, CEO of Capato. Ted has over 20 years of experience in the software sector, began in the late 90s in the attic of his parents' house. And, you know, why do so many of the best startup stories begin in attics, basements, and dorm rooms? I don't know, but his does as well. But Ted grew multiple successful startups, including being the CEO of Job Science, which was one of Salesforce's first five ISV partners. And then that company was ultimately acquired by Bullhorn. In 2018, he joined Capato as CEO, which is now the number one DevOps platform for Salesforce. Excited to introduce you to today's founder extraordinaire, Ted Elliott. Well, hey, Ted, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, tell me a little bit about your background, you know, where you've come from. Yeah, where I've come from. Well, I've been in the software industry for over 20 years, um, really got started in uh, the late 90s, um, uh, starting a software company in the attic of my parents' house uh, that I ran for about 18 years. And I sold that company in 2018 and met the two founders of Capato um, and became fascinated with this idea of people getting to go home for dinner on release days. 
uh, and and joined the the business after that. Um, before that part of my career, I'd been a lawyer uh, in the biotech industry, and I decided that I didn't really like uh, tumors. So I thought making a shift to tech was a, a much better uh, call for me, uh, and uh, and that's what I've been doing for the last twenty years. So I've seen a and couple so how of cycles. Did you come up Sure, sure. Well, I love the concept of being home for dinner on release day. I mean, that is something I think everybody listening can can resonate with that, as that's a, a beautiful thing. How did you come up with the initial idea when you did uh, the, the startup in the attic? You know, those are always fantastic stories and coming up with that idea and then bringing it to market for 18 years. Yeah, so it was actually three businesses over an 18-year period. There was a company uh, called Brass Ring that was started by the Washington Post and Gannett and the Tribune. And back in the height of the dot-com, they were all cash rich and they were trying to expand. And, and we were trying just to build a job board for people to find jobs um, because my sister uh, had wanted to start an internet company and was having uh, some challenges finding the right job. She had worked at Oracle for a bit and didn't really like it. Uh, and so I said, well, here's my Rolodex. Why don't we build a job board? And it turns out that uh, uh, the Internet crashed about a year into our project. Um, but the Washington Post, the Tribune and Gannett gave us uh, uh, $3 million a seed investment. So I kind of felt obligated to not blow it. Um, and so we went through, you know, what I would call remember of April of 2000, which is the sort of the end of the, the first iteration of the Internet. Uh, rebuilding the business um, really as a job board for hospitals and then ultimately determining that uh, we were getting beat by a company that was backed by a private equity firm. Um, and so we need to reinvent ourselves. And we ultimately in 2010 decided to build a software application on salesforce.com. And that turned out to be of the three iterations of our business, kind of the successful one. Um, but it took many iterations getting there. And uh, we, we got to learn that in SaaS companies, that if you have a good product, you don't have to keep iterating on it because you have this reoccurring revenue model and people will keep paying you. And so we used the revenue from our first kind of two pivots to pay the freight of getting started uh, in Salesforce at a time when no one would really invest in that area. So it, it taught me a lot working with family, working with founders, uh, working uh, in pivots, uh, being willing to make changes, understanding that your business isn't over when you make certain changes. It's just different. Uh, those, I think, have all been kind of valuable lessons for you know where I've been over the last three years and, and where I think we're, we're going right now in, in the current cycle uh, that we're in. Because we, we definitely are in a cycle where the window has shut again um, on financing. So I think it's good to have had the experience of, of been through that. I'm not sure. I, I was thinking the other day, I'm like, geez, I'm getting old. I'm like, why don't old old guys do startups? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, because you know you can only burn your hand so many times. But um, it's uh, it's it's been a lot of fun, um, and uh, and I'm glad that I, I had the experience. How have you seen attitudes change with SaaS technology and putting data online since you know, over, especially over the last twenty years? I mean, it it seems like it's way way different. Yeah, I mean, than, uh, than even ten years ago. Completely. So, I mean, uh, I think back when I was started starting in this, uh, it was a novelty um, and there were lots of concerns about privacy. And I think uh, probably about six or seven years ago, people started realizing their data was actually safer in the cloud than it was in their office. And I remember I was I, I'm still an attorney. And so I take these continuing legal education classes. And I remember listening to uh, a course about 
how dentist's office and doctor's offices were getting hit by data privacy uh, thieves, by uh, pirates of data, because they could just roll their truck into the office, steal the server and have all the patient's data. And that's that's kind of that moment when I was like, wow, it, it's actually safer in the cloud. And, and I had my own experience uh, about 15 years ago, I had my laptop in my car, the car got broken into, it was all gone. <clears throat> and after that point, I kind of developed this methodology that nothing should live on your laptop your laptop should just be your terminal to the cloud. All your data is in the cloud, and um, and it should be safer there because there are more people watching and protecting it. Now that doesn't mean that it's free from attack or it's free from people trying to get into it, but you have so many more layers of defenses that that it's sort of uh, it's like having a bike lock. You know, if someone really wants your data, they're going to get it. Um, but um, but it, it puts enough barriers that it's easier to get someone else's data. So, I mean, I really think that change occurred in the last seven to 10 years um, as people just realized. I mean, yeah, I, I remember when I first started, Jeff, that um, we used to have to go buy two to three servers to put into a, a lab to test, then, then to put in the servers. And if one of the pieces of hardware died, it was going to take six to eight weeks to get a new piece of hardware in the data center. Um, and right. and that, that was right. tough, right? And, and that was convincing people to put stuff in a data center as opposed to putting it in, you know, the back of their office with a APC battery that was sure to go down. So um, I think we've come to a point where data is a data services and hosting is a commodity and one that we expect is safer in the cloud uh, than where we are now. I'm, of course, I'll say that and watch everyone will decide to come back and bring it uh, bring it home. I mean, I think we have a real challenge with Russia and China um, hacking. That um, and also not being open to having their data in the cloud, um, that that you start to question whether at some point there will be some retrenchment on on kind of this game. But I I think for the foreseeable future, this is sort of it's going to be like a utility like power or water. Uh, your data is going to be a utility, and so I think people feel pretty safe about that. So I don't know if I answered your question, but but hopefully I did. Yes, yes, yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. That uh, much much safer in the cloud. And just to, for if for no other reason, the expertise in configuring the networks and hardening those networks versus having it in an office and having somebody that's kind of a jack of all trades uh, who's not a network expert managing that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think we're just going to a place where we have less and less people who are skilled at knowing how to lock things down and more and more demand. And so you have to go commoditize a lot of these activities. Uh, and actually, I mean, that's a big piece of DevOps is that, that uh, at least what we're trying to do at Capado is that our, our thesis is that there's more demand, even in a down economy, there's so much more demand for skilled labor that knows how to do development, that knows how to do uh, deployment, that knows how to do security, that you're going to have to create tools that allow more people uh, the ability to play the, the game, but you're going to have to host those tools in the cloud and take away a lot of the work that has to be done locally uh, to make these things work. And that's simply just because you don't have the resources. I mean, who is really good at this? Who wants to work in a small office? Uh, who can't get paid more going to the next gig? And even if you're in a big office or a big company, um, you really want to start uh, standardizing because the people who are maintaining your Jenkins or your Git repository, all these things, they have a lot of mobility. And, and so they're not necessarily going to want to stick around um, and be a you know tenure employee maintaining a, a Git repository or automations in Jenkins because they're really specialists with a, this high demand skill. So I, I just think we're going to a place where um, it's almost like an industrial revolution in a way where, where we're going to a place where the machinery, the industry of code building, the industry of security, the industry of all the pieces that you need to make working are going to have to be 
commoditized so that the final mile of work can be done by specialists who have subject matter expertise. And that's that's kind of how I see things evolving, you know, just at this point in time. And that makes a lot of sense. And I think we've seen some of that consolidation just with more automation, that a lot of the simpler tasks can now be done through automation or or even just, you know, like low code, no code uh, applications. So we've taken a lot of that out and it really takes that specialist to to really get that the endpoints done is to take it that last mile because that's where the real expertise is. Yeah, um, I, I just recently saw a presentation by a professor at Cal Berkeley on AI. And it was amazing to me, he said, um, you know, we can make computers do all this stuff. And he pointed out three decades worth of um, IBM computers playing the greatest chess players in the world. And he said, it's really interesting that we can beat the greatest chess players in the world with a computer, but we still can't move the pawn on the board. And that they're in every picture for the last three decades, there was a human being moving that last piece. Uh, you know, the computer gave the command, but the human actually moved the piece. And the whole talk was basically on the challenges of robotics and teaching machines how to do things. And I, I think that's kind of a similar problem that we have with high levels of automation is we're going to have to determine where you need the human to move that last piece or the final mile or the, the last couple feet of it. Um, and it was a fascinating talk. Um, and but I thought it was kind of funny that he, he was showing these pictures literally over 30 years of people playing computers in chess and beat and having the <laughs> computer beat them, yet you had to have a human move the piece. So, uh, you know, that's that's kind of where we are with a lot of things today. Yeah, humans and technology interacting. Yeah. What do you think the changes are from an economic standpoint and going forward with where we are today in comparison to where we've been some places in the past? Yeah, so, I mean, I think there is a industrial revolution cycle going on right now, I like to equate it to we're in the 1792 of, of the internet. Um, and what I mean by that uh, is that in 1792 outside Boston, you had women who were coming into the workplace for the first time. They'd never really been able to have access to the workplace um, because of you know the way society was functioning um, or, or not functioning. Um, and, and they were given this chance to work in factories, but they weren't, um, you know, and, and those factories were basically mass producing sweaters, shoes, all these things. And so you had this, this changeover where the folks who hand cobbled shoes and made sweaters and did all this work, they were going to be displaced, um, by a, a revolution in technology. Um, and, and we were going to mass produce, um, you know, commodities that people needed. And I think we're in a similar place in technology right now, except for the, the shoe cobblers and the artisans are probably not going to be displaced all that quick. But I think your full stack developers and your people who are, are maintaining a lot of complex software to keep commoditized functions going um, are going to, over the next 10 years, move to other jobs. Um, and it won't happen overnight. And these people are in super high demand. Um, but we're going to allow people globally, a lot of which don't make the same hourly rate, to operate these functions. So take India, for example. Um, great math skills, great science skills, great computer skills, um, but not really given full access to making decisions or, or pushing things forward. And I think we're going to see a change occur there um, simply because they're going to get access to these commoditized tools. And then I think the second layer of these commoditized tools are going to be more localized to folks who would be product managers or analysts or people who wouldn't traditionally be coders who are making kind of business decisions about what's going forward and what's not going forward because we're going to de-risk um, the whole development cycle um, with tooling. Now, there's way too many tools out there today. Um, there, there are way too many ways to, to do DevOps, for example, or, or there, you know, probably a half a dozen Git repositories. And so that's going to probably 
you know, get streamlined or, or look more like a supermarket aisle soon where there's going to be three brands and then a, a house brand. Um, but, but we're going to see this uh, changeover where um, the high skill artisans are still going to have work. It's just not going to be the same work they were doing five or 10 years ago. And we're going to see more and more work pushed to analysts and administrators who are, are configuring, not, not coding, right? Um, and, and we're going to do that because we're going to build tools that allow them to take their subject matter expertise or their team subject matter expertise and have it have a much bigger impact um, on development. And we kind of have to do that because the only way we're going to get more efficiency and more productivity is to disconnect the, the communications breakdown between developers and the people who need stuff developed. And so it kind of makes natural sense that you would bring more people to the table who actually have to use the stuff and work with it. Um, but we've never had the technology to make it easier for them to do it. A WYSIWYG um, is not a great concept. I mean, if you think about 20 years ago, WYSIWYG, a front page website, you kind of like laugh about who would use that? That's a total piece of garbage. That's not going to perform. And now when I talk to you know the marketing teams about what are they using to maintain the website, it's all it's all drag and drop. It's all WYSIWYG. And so you're, of course. you're dumbing yes. that down. And, and so the question becomes, well, why wouldn't you do that with your database? And why wouldn't you do that with your calculations? And why wouldn't you do that with your automations? And why wouldn't you, where else could you go with this about, you know, why wouldn't you go to the people who actually have the job to complete and, and have that done? And I think we're going to see a consolidation of the people who do the deployments, um, do the monitoring um, and and do the project management into sort of single units as they have software that helps them support support that role. But I'm talking about ten years. Like so, no one should worry today that anything's going to happen to their jobs. But if you're you're a really skilled de developer, um, you should be free to go do really creative stuff and, and and innovative stuff, not do pushing boxes around the warehouse, which a lot of this work, you know, kind of is, uh, and that's why we can automate so much of it. Um, but but the tools that I think you're going to see coming down the road in testing for testing automation um, are going to then become monitoring automation that are then going to be, you know, become deployment automation. And, and I think that's going to basically, you know, I've been reading a bunch of Gartner reports and Forrester reports, and they say that we're going to see a shift over the next five years. You know, we're we're, going, we're 75, 80 percent of the DevOps world is, you know, pretty pretty techie um, and it's going to become more like 30 um, percent. And that's kind of an innovation that's coming. And the, the question is really going to be, who are the winners and losers going to be uh, in that in that changeover? I, did I answer your question, Jeff? You did. You okay. did. I can talk so how a does lot. Capato... <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. How does Capato fit into that new world and uh, and where the, the industry is going? Yeah. So I think Capato fundamentally sees Salesforce as a misunderstood company. Um, if we're such a big software company that's doing so much. Um, Salesforce is, is not usually interpreted as being a big sort of platform cloud player. But when you look at digital transformation, they're, they're really you know, sweeping up. Uh, I'd say ServiceNow and Salesforce are really sweeping up in digital transformation because they're allowing the customer to see that it could become a reality in their lifetime. That within the, like, the next, oh, you want to start a project, within 12 months we can be deployed, we can bring in consultants and low coders, and then you can maintain it for yourself. And so I, I think there's going to be this shift to platforms like Salesforce, which I, I refer to as paid source software. And what I mean by paid source software is, you know, Linux is open source, right? And, and they don't, right. Linux itself is a, you know, open source project that doesn't make any money, um, but Red Hat makes a ton of money supporting Linux. Well. Now you've got Salesforce, which is this platform uh, that, that is called force.com that it, you have to pay to play on, right? Um, but they're not necessarily giving you any more support than you were getting from Linux. 
they're just hosting it and maintaining it and tying it to all these other things that you would you need to almost pay for gated access to these other tools. And so you're going to see kind of an evolution of companies like um, Capado. They're in essence going to be like a red hat for paid source software. Um, and, and you're going to see this, I think, in the ServiceNow ecosystem also, because I think what, what we're seeing is that the innovation or the snowplow of innovation is occurring in kind of packaged software where I can deploy it really quickly in the enterprise. Um, and I'm not saying that's every use case, but at least in enterprise computing and, and stuff that's impacting workforce uh, effectiveness, um, you're, you're seeing a ton of that in Workday and ServiceNow and in, in, in Salesforce. And so what we're trying to do is say, OK, we're going to embrace that. If you talk to most people in the DevOps world, they'd be like, oh, well, who would ever work on Salesforce? Oh, my God. You know, and that's almost like going to talk to someone who used to cobble shoes in 1792 outside Boston saying, well, who would buy a sweater from that factory when I can hand knit you this perfect sweater? And it's like, well, man, this is where it's going. Um, so, right. so I think that's where we're trying to position ourselves is, hey, we see the tea leaves. We see where the market's going. We see where the spending is going. Um, and, and we believe these people need help to be successful because we've unfortunately spent night after night deploying software and, and you know, wanting to go home for dinner. Uh, and, and so that's where it all ties back. You know, I, I don't know if you have heard the story, but at one point I asked one of our customers, you know, what's the number one thing we're doing for you? And he said, less divorces. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. What do you mean less divorces? <laughs> and he said, well, we're actually That's a great metric. Yeah. He's like, we're tracking divorces in our team. And that's how big of a team it was. And divorces are way down since we started using Capado because people are not angry. They don't hate their job. They get to go home on a regular schedule. Things are predictable. People don't like chaos. Developers hate chaos, right? And, and people who are using business software don't want it to break all the time. And so, so I think figuring out how to satisfy that role, which you'd say, well, why wouldn't Salesforce or ServiceNow or SAP, why wouldn't they do this? Well, their core business is selling their platform or selling their their innovation in, in selling or customer service. And so getting down in the weeds of, of how do you support the IT department, or in some cases they call this the shadow IT department, because these are projects that sort of snuck into IT that IT was like, well, we would have, if we had known this was gonna be on Salesforce, we would have killed this a long time ago. And 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 it just happens, right? And so so we're, we're seeing the numbers in the market and we're seeing the adoption and, and that's kind of where we've decided to position Capato. So maybe we're at the opposite end of the spectrum of a, like a GitLab, which I think is really for you know your pure hardcore full stack developers. We're we're for the people who have to kind of deliver that final mile of innovation um, to the business. That's a, a great metric in, uh, in just for, especially hearing it from a client that you're having that much of an impact on their team and just the, the productivity of their workforce and just happiness. Yeah, I mean, I told I him that's that after, really important. After he told me that, I was like, OK, I, my day is over. I'm just going to go for a dog walk because it's not going to get better than this today. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 really fun when people feel impacted by what you're doing. Right. Um, and that, I think, ultimately builds successful companies is when you have impact on people and they love what you're doing for them and they become your flag bearers. Right. And that's that's rare. I mean, you've started multiple companies. It's very hard for you to, you know, look. I know at job science, my favorite day at job science was when this one customer sent us a pizza party to the office. And I came in the office and I said, where did all this pizza come from? And they said, well, we had this one customer that really likes us and feels like we're helping them out. And so they sent us a pizza party. And I mean, I wish I could tell you about more pizza parties at the office. But but that was like a magical moment. Right. And at Capado, kind of the experiences I've had is, you know, people who are like, hey, can I come up and read you this poem that I wrote? 
about how you changed my business or can I you know, get my picture with your team because I want to show everyone back at the office that I met the team from Capado. And I'm not saying this is every day. I'm not saying everyone loves us. But boy, that is really cool. And, and you find out that when you do that, a lot of the pieces, you know, come together. Um, and, and that's kind of what I figured out, you know, after 20 years of building software, it's like, well, why are you building it to make money? Yeah, I've already made money. I'm, I'm really building it because I want to do something that I think actually helps people. And particularly for me, I spent so many nights. I mean, I wasn't one of the coders. I was the guy who sat in the elevator bank with the pizzas and the Cokes to make sure no one would leave the building and that I'd have something to bribe them into sticking around. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I hated those nights. I, I hated it. Um, I felt like I had no power. I felt like I had no control. I felt like I didn't like my job. I mean, at one point I wore a pager. This was back in the early days of job science. I wore a pager that would tell me when the servers were going to go down. And we had this one developer who I will not name uh, in your podcast, who basically um, decided that he was going to push code wherever he wanted to. And he didn't care if it broke. And, oh, wow. um, and he had tables that did the same thing in the database. But because he couldn't remember where that table was, he just created a new table that did the same thing because it was easier for him. And and I, boy, that I think I probably got a lot of this gray hair uh, as a result of, of, of those experiences. And I just I wanted to do something about it. And when I met the two founders of Capado and they told me what they were doing, I was like, it's this speaks to me. So anyway, that's great. And it's really nice that you can have not only a company that's that's profitable and and doing really well, but also changing the lives of, of your your clients. Well, I, I wish we were profitable, um, but uh, we're we're going we've been going for growth over the last couple of years. And I think when I joined the company, you know, we were in the four million range in ARR, and now we're a little over seventy, and we're headed, you know, at the end of the year to you know probably close to a hundred. Um, it's fantastic growth. Yeah, it's fantastic growth. Um, and so that told me that that can I, I believe that ARR equals trust. And when people give you $70 million AR, they're trusting you 70 million times. Um, and it feels really good to be trusted 70 million times, by the way, um, a lot better than being trusted a million times or 500,000 times. Um, and <laughs> so, doubt. so, so that's been that that's been what's fun. I mean, I think though, we're going to the next stage of where where our business is going is saying, okay, um, we've got a high growth story, but what is the market rewarding today at this very moment in time? What are they punishing? Um, and I think it's it, the rules are changing. The, the rule book is changing pretty quickly under our feet. Uh, and luckily we raised a lot of money, so we have the ability to sort of adjust. Um, but I think that you're gonna see a big shakeout over the next uh, six to 12 months with uh, companies that that thought that the rule book was, you know, a certain multiple and a certain game plan, and and it's it's going to be a much tougher landscape uh, in the in the near future. Well, I think you're exactly right, and and you mentioned there are a lot of competitors in the space, a lot of companies, and, and so do you see consolidation happening? Not yet within um, that. No, so Not I mean, yet. the first thing I'm watching is I'm an LP and a couple of venture funds, very small amounts of money in those funds, um, but I'm not getting a lot of capital calls. So even though people tell you they're open for business, when you're not getting capital calls as an LP, that means no one's deploying money. And, and it means two things. They're not only not deploying money in uh, new investments, they're not deploying money in their existing investments. And, and I think the second one's fast is far more fascinating and scarier. So what they're betting on right now is that the portfolio companies they have have enough cash runway to figure out how to unscrew themselves, right? So they're going to do that over the next six months. And that's where I think you're going to see a lot of blood in the street as people sort of correct to make sure that they have runway 
and everyone's betting on two years or two and a half years is the amount of runway you need. Everyone says 18 months. The problem is where do the 18 months start, right? So you're gonna see this adjustment occur and then you're gonna see in the first and second quarter of next year who didn't make the adjustments, okay? Um, the other thing that's going to factor into this that has nothing to do with, with the startup economy is think of all the businesses out there that have raised debt that their debt is going to cost them twice as much when their two-year revolver comes up in January right. or December. And so, so I think if we look at what's going on right now, I think there are two different stories going on. I think there's the investor story and then there's the, uh, the Wall Street and Main Street story. Main Street's still operating. Main Street needs to keep operating. The demand is there. Costs are going up. People are frustrated. There's a general stress or malaise in the economy that comes from 10% employment. There's a lot of people who are in a lot of trouble. I mean, imagine like where I live in New Orleans, if the average salary in New Orleans is $40,000 a year and the cost of gas has gone from $250 to $5, you're, you're making the decision between your next meal and, and getting to work, right? So there, there's this tremendous stress ball that's growing in the economy and we've got to figure out whether it's going to get released. The good news is um, twofold. One is there's not enough people to do the work that we had before and we were probably understaffed by 20 or 30%. So if you take 40 or 50% out of that, your, your unemployment numbers probably won't look so bad. And, and it's not the whole economy that's got trouble. Um, it's certain segments. Um, the second thing is we sell guns, grain, and, uh, and gas in America. <laughs> and if we unload those markets, um, the rest of the world needs guns, grain, and gas right now. Um, and so the U.S. economy should probably be pretty strong uh, in the near future. So, so I, I think this is going to be pretty short-lived, but I think everyone's got to be prepared for some adjustment. And I think the, the consolidation is going to occur second quarter and third quarter of next year, um, where you see who are the survivors and who are the ones that had great business plans and actually were growing, but they couldn't get control of cost um, and they couldn't rationalize their business. And, and they're, they're, you're going to probably you know, see some great you know, businesses that falter and you're going to see some great businesses that get combined. Um, but but it's it's you know you you've started four businesses right so uh, you've seen this cycle before I'm sure um, right it doesn't make it any easier it doesn't make it enjoyable um, but it, it's just a kind of a natural part of of the evolution so um, what we're seeing is we serve the biggest six thousand customers uh, in the world um, and and we're not seeing a, a big decrease in demand and we're 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 seeing pretty healthy growth occur. I think the second quarter, which we're about to finish, will probably be our best quarter ever or our second best quarter. Usually we're a fourth quarter business. I'm very much worried about the fourth quarter because if that's when, you know, the proverbial S is supposed to hit the, you know, where the uh, spinning fan, um, that's when right. we'll probably see it. So everyone's in bunker mode of going, OK, how do we prepare for the worst and plan for the best? Um, uh, but but it, it's, a, it, it's a very interesting time. I don't know if you hear this from other you know SaaS leaders. But it's a time where I think I run into a lot of people in their 30s who've actually never done this before. And they they've never been through a downside, a real down cycle as a business leader. Um, and so so they're they're really operating on a on a clock speed that I think is a little too slow. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see you know what happens there. Without a doubt. And uh, I remember, you know, Y2K was one of those, 2008 was one of those, 2012. And we've seen that uh, to one degree or another multiple times. Yeah. I mean, so I, what advice would you have for, for those founders who haven't lived through one of those economic cycles? 
Uh, well, I think the first piece of advice is that it's not personal when you have to make tough decisions. It's it's practical, um, and that you got into business to execute an objective, um, and that you have to really go back and write down on paper what you're trying to achieve again. Um, because with uh, there's so much noise and so much information hitting you, and so many different people um, that are are you know, approaching you with, oh, well, what do you think's happening? Or are we gonna do this? Or should we wait until next quarter to make a decision? You really need to um, write down your thoughts. And then what I do, my little personal trick is I buy a box of envelopes. And what I usually do is I write dates on envelopes and I put index cards in the envelopes with ideas that I have that say, if this happens, did I make this decision or that decision? And I use those envelopes to hold me accountable. Um, and, and it's hard because a lot of the decisions you write up in those envelopes are hard decisions, but the clock is the only thing you don't ever get to control, right? Time is going no matter what. Um, and I have a habit of buying people chess clocks who work for me. And they're always like, why did you buy me a chess clock? I said, well, you know, there's kind of three decisions in life. There, there's good decisions. We will absolutely forget the good decisions you made within minutes. Now, Europeans are the opposite. They'll remember the good decisions and somehow forget the bad decisions easily. But uh, in America, we forget the good decisions instantly. Bad decisions, we make them all the time. And they're no problem as long as we can fix them quickly, right? Um, if you don't address them. But you know what is going to kill us all is indecision. And so the reason I buy people chess clocks is to say there's only so much time on the clock. you got to make a decision. And, and, and I'm expecting that half your decisions are going to be wrong. And, and that's okay because as long as we recognize we make bad decisions and we don't try and hide them and we address them, we can progress. And I think that's kind of the approach that, that you've got to take right now is like, just don't let the clock run. Make, make the decisions, be prepared that you're gonna make some mistakes. It's gonna be okay, life moves on, um, but, but don't, don't wait. Don't sit on the sliding rock waiting to get into the lake. Uh, my father told me this great story that he was driving cross country from college, from Navy UCS to California. And he went out and got on this mossy rock in Lake Michigan. And all of a sudden he could feel himself slipping. And he was like, am I gonna slip? Am I not gonna slip? Am I gonna slip? Am I not? And he said, next thing he knew his ass was half deep in water. And, and the point of that story is it's like, make a decision, right? So I don't know if that's advice that's helpful, but but I hope I hope if there's anyone out there listening who you know is thinking about, okay, well, what do I do? Whatever you do, do something. Don't, don't, don't dawdle. Make a decision and, and do it fast. Yeah, exactly. And then if, if it is the wrong decision, then you have some time to, to change it. Or, you do. Or, you know, make yeah, a different well, I th decision. I think the thing is you have to define what success is. I mean, that that's the key is like, if you're gonna make a decision, you have to really monitor whether the decision you made um, is meeting the success criteria that you've laid out. Because if it's not, you have to make another decision quickly, which is to adjust. What you don't want to do is keep tacking. I see you have a boat behind you on your wall there. It's like the worst thing you can do in a sailboat race is keep turning the boat. Um, so, so you make a decision, see if it's working, make some adjustments, um, and, and don't be afraid to make a mistake here or there. That's great advice. Making hard decisions is, is really hard, but making them slowly, I think, is, is infinitely more difficult. Yeah. Instead of just uh, jumping forward. Well, one of the gifts that I got from almost dying of cancer is that when they give you these wonderful pads at MD Anderson to sign to say that you're going to take poison that could kill you, you got to make a decision at that very moment, right? And you could spend hours reading these disclaimers and all the things it could do to you, but it's like, okay, 
<laughs> A live, B die. I don't get to decide, but we're going to see what happens. And uh, and you kind of have to live life that way. Otherwise, it, it passes you up pretty quickly and you already you're going to die no matter what. It's just when it's are you going to die on your terms or someone else's terms? You know, and and if you want to live, you've got to do everything you can do to to go for it anyway. I like that. So thinking about making decisions and, and defining what success is, what success metrics do you use in managing Capato? And uh, you know, what, what metrics do you think are most important for SaaS founders? Yeah, so uh, I think the most important metric that you can use is the rule of 40, um, which is, um, uh, and, and of course I've had people suggest to me, it would be great if you guys could do the rule of 50 or the rule of 60. I'm like, it, it's, it would be, wouldn't that be great? But I'm like, I'm going <laughs> to aim for the rule of 40 because uh, that's what I think that I think it's a good measure. And the rule of 40 is, you know, if you have 40% growth, you can have 0% EBITDA. If you have 80% growth, you can negative 40% EBITDA. But basically, do you have unit economics that makes sense? Um, and um, you can go out of the rule of 40 from time to time, but not for too long. And it's very good to benchmark yourself. I don't know if you've ever seen Insight Venture Capital post these uh um, insight benchmarks, if you Google it, insight benchmarks, and they have benchmarks for sales teams and they have benchmarks for marketing teams, and they have benchmarks for customer success. And what they've done is they've gone across their portfolio companies and looked at these benchmarks. It doesn't mean you always have to nail the benchmark, but the question you have to ask yourself is that when you're not following the benchmark, why are you not following the benchmark? What is different about your business from all the other software companies they've ever invested in um, that have been successful? What, what's so different about you than everybody else? Um, because you need something, you know, the hard part we have as entrepreneurs is we do not, especially CEOs, we don't really have a lot of people we can talk to, right? It's, I, right. I, I call it sort of the, uh, the crying clown syndrome, smiling on the outside, crying on the inside. And there's not like a AA group for CEOs. Well, there are, I mean, I'm a part of this one group called the Alliance of Chief Executives. And, and, and it, it's it, the great thing about going to that group is to realize you're not the only one with problems. But if you don't have a group like that, you need benchmarks so that you can at least understand, it, would you go fly a plane with a mask on your eyes and not know up or down? At least you have your instruments when you're flying in the fog. Um, right. so, so, so running a business is very much like flying a 747 in fog. And the benchmarks tell you where the ground is and where the sky is. Um, and, and rule 40 is, is the, the true north, right? Um, then when you go from rule 40, you look at what your CAC costs. And, and I think one of the most important factors, especially in the fast growth business, is what is your NRR and what is your uh, gross uh, label retention? Um, and that tells you if your product is working. Because if you are really, if you've got $2 going out of the barrel for every $2 you're putting in the barrel, the barrel's not filling up with water, right? And and the beauty of these SaaS companies is that you're building machines that basically are supposed to continue generating revenue, even if you stop operating any of the cool stuff. That the reason investors feel right. so safe with the model um, is that you can literally get rid of everybody, and it will probably perform at eighty or ninety percent of what it performed at with you all operating. And that's a horrifying thing to tell your employees or, or people working your company. What do you mean if we were all gone, it would operate at 80 or 90% of the revenue? Yeah, well, as long as you don't break <laughs> it, look at Trilogy right. software. That's, that's what the machine is for. That's what yeah. we're the machine we're building. Yeah, we can automate your job to the point where it will just keep paying out. Even it's a slot machine that just keeps paying out. Um, and so, so that net revenue retention, though, is super important because it tells you how much people are really adopting or using your product. And it's probably the single best measure of future success is past success. Um, and I know that from time to time, investors will get hung up with, oh, well, are you generating more revenue from new logos? 
than from your existing customers. But And you, you need to balance that. But I don't think you should ever be afraid, especially when you're very good at segmenting your business and who you want to sell to. Um, you shouldn't be afraid of that number. You should keep on trying to grow that number as much as possible because that that's basically, uh, that's your um, franchise, right? Your franchise is your customers. Um, so yeah, I look at net revenue retention. I look at cost, cost of customer acquisition costs, um, rule of 40. And then, and I look at the general benchmarks, you know, what are your ratios of sales engineers to sales reps? What, you know, how much are you spending on development versus, and, and you don't want to be in the ballpark. And, and the reason you want to be in the ballpark is ultimately you're doing business to make money at some point. And if you look completely different than everybody else, the market can't really digest that. Um, an old lesson I learned in my last job before tech, I was general counsel of a biotech company. We did this complex maneuver to set up a company in Ireland that had its office in Bermuda to avoid taxes. And it was so complicated that when we actually went to go talk to investors, they said, can you reverse it back to what we keep seeing? Because this is too complex. And so, so that's the other thing is make sure the numbers you're looking at are generally accepted numbers that everyone looks at. Um, that you're not creating your own playbook, that you're you're taking generally accepted accounting principles uh, and, and you're, you're just using that. Because if you confuse investors, they have five other investments to look at and they and they are going to come back at some point, even though the window is closed right now. Um, and when they do, if you look like a science project that they're going to have to unwind, it doesn't matter how cool your company is or what you do. They're going to walk away because they have a, that's it's just too complex. Yeah, it makes it too hard. And in, in best case, your business ends up being heavily discounted because they don't understand that they, they think the they have to fix of, everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. So if you look at net revenue retention, are you talking more logo or percentage? So what I look at in net revenue retention is I look at for every dollar we made from our customers last year, if I took the customers as a whole, how many dollars are we earning this year, right? And in the case of Capado, we make a dollar thirty off our customer base for every dollar we made last year. So that basically bakes in thirty percent growth into my business model before I start selling without anything. selling a thing. Without selling anything, right? So I mean, you yeah. are selling something, but you're you're basically, and it's not from just raising the price, you know, on the customers by thirty percent because they wouldn't go for that. But how are you expanding the number of seats they're buying from you, or offering them additional SKUs, or giving them more value? How are, how are you making it work better for them? Um, and when you're up in the one thirties, um, uh, you have the ability to know that you have a foundational base, right? And and the investors, that's super attractive because they're going, oh wow these guys have customers that really like the product because the biggest concern of an investor usually is, hey, I like this, but is this, this have they really found product market fit? Is this real? You know, or do they just, you know, because, you know, they've been burned in the past by other companies that sold a lot of stuff and no one knew what they actually bought. And, you know, it was a mess and I won't, I won't name any of those companies, but um, that happens the, a lot. Yeah, it happens a lot. And so so they're looking for points of truth, right? Um, so that's how we measure it. We're looking at dollars uh, generated in the previous year, how many dollars, you know, what what are we generating this year on the same base of customers? And then what we're doing is we're stacking on top of those customers, additional customers. Now, how do you get to something like 130% revenue retention? You probably have about nine or 10% logo loss over the course of the year. Um, so you're 90% logo retention. But those 90% of logos you're retaining, you're a good product market fit for. And you should never assume that you're a good product market fit for 100% of the people who buy your product because things happen that you have no control over. Sure. And, and, and so 
Um, I remember in the early days of being involved in the Salesforce ecosystem, I talked to the first CMO at Salesforce and he told me, you know, 85 to 90% was outstanding as far as, you know, he was concerned when he, back, you know, this is 20 years ago at Salesforce. But um, those are, are if, you're, if you're way below 85% logo retention and you're way below 98 or 99% revenue retention, you, you've got a problem. And, and you're going to be valued in this market probably at a multiple that will make you you know want to you know throw up in a bucket. Um, if you can master those things, you're in a you're you're in the in the A fleet of businesses people can look at, um, and uh, and it gives you some flexibility. Oh, without a doubt, and that helps you a long way for the rule of forty when you already have that that growth baked in from your existing base. Uh, and now you're able to go out and, and add new business as well. It puts you in a really good place to continue that growth trend. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's the foundation. Well, what advice would you give uh, founders uh, as we go through, you know, a potential economic uh, challenges, turmoil? Yeah, what a challenge, turmoil. Uh, <laughs> um, what advice would I give you? Um, fail fast. Fail fast. Um the, I, I heard this one time at a presentation in Silicon Valley that I thought was fascinating. If you have to tell someone that th they just need to have your experience to understand what you're talking about to get it, you're already dead. Um, you have wow. to be able to make it so that people understand what you're talking about. You need to recognize that if people aren't buying your product or they're not giving you their dollars, then they like you but they don't think the product, they don't understand what you're doing or they don't understand the product and you need to be able to accept that quickly. And you either change what you're doing or you will be doing the same business for seven and a half years, hoping that this is the year that it will turn around and it won't. And I'm sure you've seen this with your friends, especially yes. if you're in the startup world. The chasing of the sun is a common um, affliction of the entrepreneur because we love our idea. I can't tell you yes. how much money I personally spent on stuff that I thought was genius that no one else would get. I can't tell you how much time I spent at Capado with ideas that I thought were genius that no one else would get that I couldn't convince people to do. And ultimately what I decided was I can't convince anyone to do anything. I can only show them ways they can be successful and they can either get it or not. And if they don't get it, I need to accept what they don't get pretty quickly and adjust to the next idea. Because if I keep flogging ideas that people don't like, eventually they'll think I'm an idiot. Okay, and if they think I'm an idiot, the likelihood that they will follow me into a fire is extremely low. I mean, I can charm right. people and I can be a nice guy and all this other stuff, but ultimately that's not gonna matter. It, what, what matters is, did I give them something that made their day better or help them do their job better or made them more effective? Um, and that's that's a really tough thing to do as an entrepreneur, as a startup person. But you've got to be realistic. And that doesn't mean that you don't go one more mile than everyone else would go after you've been given the nose 10 times. Because if you, if you give up too quickly, it's the opposite side of the coin. It could have been a great idea, but you just didn't have the fortitude to see it. But get those envelopes out and put dates on them and, and be realistic with yourself um, and and use even if you're not going to raise money from venture capitalists, use them as a stocking board to sort of crap on your ideas so you can understand where the market is. Um, and then use your buyers as your real confirmation. If Are people willing to pay you money for the product that you're putting in front of them? And if they're not, the market is spoken. Right. 
And that's a very, it's so hard. I mean, it is so hard. I mean, I personally get um, a number of my friends who hit me up to invest in their businesses. And I have a general rule. I will not invest in businesses of my friends ever. And it's not because they might not make a fortune or have a great idea. I I don't want to lose the friendship over a disagreement. Um, and I will give them my time for free and I'll help them with their business. They're like, oh, do you want some stock or this? No, I don't care. I, I want you to be successful. But um, but if, you know, but I, I won't invest in them mainly because I I don't want to lose the friendships and, and I can't be honest with people about what I think if my money's involved in it, right? And And so you can be very honest when you're not an investor in someone's company, telling them what you like and don't like. That's why customers right. are so great, right? Um, the customer will tell you, I don't like this because I'm paying for this, it's not working for me. And that's the kind of the brutal feedback that you have to have so that you can adjust. I have that, the same rule with with friends, but a lot of times, sometimes, well, I'll say a lot of times, uh, when we do make those investments, we become friends in the, the long term. Well, but sometimes. That's a, that's a hard, yeah, that's a hard <laughs> line to, to, to draw there and and not do that sometimes. Yeah, and sometimes they're mad at you for not investing them because they think you don't believe right. in their idea. But I'm I just like to be consistent. Yeah, friendship's more important than money. Yeah, you can make friends with people once you've invested in them, but it's yes. better to, to make friends with them after you've invested in them and then you know have friends that you lose because you invested in them and it didn't work out. Right, right, and that does that happens a lot is we become friends over time. Yeah, totally. After the investment, because we're we're in it. <laughs> it's your new best friend. We better make that's it. That's right. We're battling together. Yeah, uh, that's great. What was the the big game changer that got Capato moving? You said you know four million to to seventy, and I'm looking at a hundred now. So what was the big catalyst that that got that jump started and moving forward so quickly? Yeah, so I, I think the catalyst was focus. Um, the two founders came, uh, to California, we met and we talked about the business and I asked them, you know, what type of customers are you selling to? And they said, well, we sell anywhere from a $5,000 deal to a $50,000 deal. And I said, okay, well, where are you spending the most time servicing people? Well, we're spending the same amount on someone who spends $5,000 with us that spends $50,000 with us. There you go. Yeah. And I said, okay, well, if I can only put X number of people in the field to sell the product, and I need to demonstrate to the investor pool that I can um, generate revenue because revenue cures all ills, then I probably need to figure out if we can focus on the $50,000 customer and I probably have to get rid of the $5,000 customer. And they're like horrified. What do you mean get rid of one of our customers? We work so hard to get these customers, you're gonna kill off one of our customers. I'm like, I'm not gonna kill them off, I'm just gonna invite them to leave. Um, and, and the why I'm gonna do that is because I only have so much resource to spread to create the growth, right? Um, and so once we did that and we decided, okay, this is the segment we're gonna go after. Then the second thing I did is something I call speed of trust, which is I went and hired a bunch of people who'd worked for me before. And you'll get criticism at some point in any business cycle, probably when you get to two or 300 people and they're like, oh, he hired all these people who worked for him. They're in control here. He you know, just listens to the people who used to work for him. Um, and, and it's probably fair criticism when you get to a certain stage, but in that early stage, when you're in the first 30 to 50 people, Boy, it is so good to know the people that you're working with and know what you don't and do like about them. And that doesn't mean you're always hiring people who are perfect. You're just hiring people who are predictable to what you know and what you know you can ask them to do without breaking them. 
Versus if you're in a startup environment with brand new people and you ask them to do things that you don't know whether they're capable of doing it or if they'd be willing to do it. Because a lot of times in startup, people have to work all weekend, all night, whatever. Um, you got to know what you're working with. And so what I ended up doing was I ended up hiring about 40, 50 people that I knew pretty well. I'd known them for over a decade. I'd worked with them in the past. A lot of people used to work for me, popped down of the woodwork and said, hey, we want to get the band back together. And so that gave us that speed of trust pretty quickly. Right. And then then it was revenue, revenue, revenue. So, I mean, the other sort of uh, big deal was that when I joined the company, um, the two founders had decided that they were going to split up the money they raised. Half of it was going to go into sales and half of it was going to go into developing a new product. And I said, you know, guys, people like the product. And if you keep changing it and I'm hiring these salespeople to sell it, they're never going to know what to sell because we're constantly changing the product. So can we take a six month break? on deploying anything new, like you can go build it, but we're not gonna give you any more money. You have the same team you've had for the last year. because so we're gonna put all the money into selling. Because if I can show that we can go from four to 15 in 12 months, then everyone's gonna be lining up wanting to invest in this thing, right? And if I do that, then we're gonna take that investment and we're gonna take the 15 to 30. If we take the 30 and we take that to, you know, six, if we keep doing this double motion, um, we're going to have a lot of people who are like, I want, I don't know what those guys are doing, but I want to be part of that. And that doesn't mean that the technology investment doesn't have to catch up. But a lot of times you have to sort of stair stop the go to market um, with what you're capable of delivering within the amount of time you have. Again, I think people forget the clock. You know, there's six months. What can I accomplish in six months? Right. What do I have to prove within that time? Um, I use the analogy of the two runners and the bear. I don't know if you know this analogy. There, there's two runners and there's a bear chasing them. And one of them stops to tie his shoes and the other one is like, why are you stopping? Well, I don't have to beat the bear. I just need to beat you. And, and I use that analogy to talk about, well, okay, in the next six months, we don't need to crush everything. We just need to crush a couple of things because the market's going to shake out and we're going to be able to demonstrate that we're, we're the leaders in the market. And that's going to then buy us the next heat with the bear and the other runner. Right. Um, and, and so, so th that, that's a big piece. So hopefully that kind of explains the methodology, but it's segment and focus work with people who you can get to speed of trust very quickly with and be very clear about what you need to accomplish within a very tight time frame. And once you've accomplished it, go raise more capital to prove that you've accomplished it so you can take it to the next level. Because it's great advice. Founders get so concerned about dilution. Dilution is when your business is worth nothing. That That's highly right. dilutive. That's the ultimate dilution. <laughs> highly dilutive. <laughs> But that all plays in really well with uh, your comment about making decisions quickly. So it's really understanding what success is, making those decisions. And I'm sure it wasn't a great conversation to go talk to Dev and go, we're not going to release anything for six months. You can build it. You know, that, that's not a fun conversation, but it's a decision that needed to be made. And it, you really focused on the things that, that you needed to do to find what success was for that period of time. Yeah, and they ended up building some great stuff in that six months. And then we were able to package up in a release that went, then seemed like we were doing a lot, right? Um, you just have to be willing to have tough conversations. Um, and it, it doesn't always make it fun. Um, it's, it's fun when everything is easy, but it's really scary. I, I personally, I don't know about you, Jeff, but I get really scared when things are easy because I'm always yes. looking for what's around the corner that's going to, you know, Life's not easy. So if it's it, the matrix, that's not how the matrix works. The woman in the red dress is going to show up at some point. And, and so you have to, <laughs> you have to sort of um, find that balance. Right. And, and, um, and we, I think the last year and a half were pretty damn easy. 
I think the next year is going to be a little harder and I think it's going to shake itself out. Uh, every time I think things are easy, crisis is just around the corner. Exactly. Well, where can people learn more about you and about Capato online? Yeah, so um, www.capato.com is where you can learn about our products um, and what we're doing. Um, the thing I'm most excited about that we're doing is what we bought a company called Cantonal in Finland. It's a robotic testing company. And I'm really into robotic testing and automation. Um, and nice. it's a fascinating product that, that you can use not just for Salesforce, but for all types of use cases. Um, and then I'm, you can find me on LinkedIn. That's kind of where I hang out. Um, I, I don't even know what my, it was at LinkedIn slash Ted Elliott. Um, but um, yeah, uh, I think those are the two best places. Jeff, thanks so much, by the way, for just the time to talk to you. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I love Thank your you. sharks. It has been fantastic. I love all the stuff you have on the back wall there, <laughs> the sharks, the boats, and the maps. So, uh, yeah, thanks a lot. That's great. Well, thank you for being on the show. And we'll make sure and link all of those in the, the show notes. And so you can get to, to capato.com and be home for dinner on release day and have a greater family life, right? Yeah, hopefully. Or uh, <laughs> as my wife likes to say, it's, I uh, married you for life, but not for lunch. So uh, well, there we anyway, go. Thank, thanks so much, Jeff. Well, thanks again to Ted for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. Learn more about Ted and Capado at capado.com, C-O-P-A-D-O. As always, all links, highlights, resources, full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. and get you right there. And while you're there at sasfuel.com, subscribe, follow us on whatever platform you're listening on. We have them all. And everyone who subscribes this week can happily say goodbye to those New Year's resolutions that are life-sucking instead of life-giving. Uh, all those who don't subscribe will inherit the most grueling resolution on your significant others list. So hurry, subscribe quick. All right, join us next time for our SaaS Fuel Expert Series conversation with Alexis Scott. Alexis is a super talented sales leader who left sales. She was really good at it, but it wasn't fulfilling. It wasn't life-giving. You know, I think we could all use more courage like that, right? To leave those things that are not life-giving and really focus in on things that are super meaningful for us. Well, she is now working in her strengths, creating content, building community, and marketing. And she is a brilliant marketer who openly shared her job search and transition on LinkedIn and helped thousands of others along the way. And then join us following next week for our founder series as we talk to Polkit Agarwal, or PK. He is founder and CEO of The Fifth Ingredient, a SaaS that is revolutionizing the brewing industry. How about that? It's an amazing conversation. So I will see you back here in a few days with Alexis and next week with our founder, PK. Until then, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.